welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. These theological things John's doing. Now, I'll warn you. I'll just forewarn you before we, before we do this. This is going to get really, really technical. And it's going to get a bit, uh, maybe a little heady. But I want you to just buckle up and stick with me because it's going to pay out. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to pay out in the end here. So this first part, stick with me because it has, I think, really, really important implications for us in our culture, in our day. So first and foremost, the theological pieces. John's, in, in the introduction of this thing, he kind of comes out with guns blazing, so to speak. He makes declarations about Jesus and who Jesus was and is that that sound very reminiscent to the Gospel of John, if you've read John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, uh, by him and through him all things were made. Very, very similar to John's Gospel. In verse 2, or in verse 1, he says, that which was from the beginning, the first thing he says, that which was from the beginning, and then in verse 2 he says, the eternal life which was with the Father. So John's writing to a group of churches and he's refuting some of these things that are being taught and said. And he starts out by saying, the eternal nature of Jesus, the eternality of Jesus Christ is absolutely critical. He makes it very clear to the readers and to the people, uh, this group called the cessationists, these, these people were kind of teaching a different gospel, so to speak, that Jesus is an eternal being, which is to say, he is not created. He's uncreated, uh, despite what you, you think or, or, or um, believe or like, dislike Chris Tomlin. He has this one, one lyric in a song, holy uncreated one, and he totally nails it spot on. Jesus is uncreated, meaning he doesn't have a beginning. There is a qualitative difference between Jesus and humanity. You and I, we have a beginning and we have an end. We don't know when it will be, most of us which is probably better. But we have a beginning and an end. Jesus, John says, is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. So there's this distinction that John makes right off the bat between who Jesus is and who we are. The book of Genesis actually starts, does anyone remember how the book of Genesis starts? In the beginning, right? FYI, when you're reading a gospel, when you're reading a book of the Bible, often the gospel writers and others will, they'll give you clues, they'll give you hints right? They'll say something that actually tap into this long story that goes way, way back. John, the gospel starts with, in the beginning was the word, right? First John starts with that which was from the beginning, okay? If you're not paying attention, let me clue you in. What John is saying here is pay attention. If you know the story of Genesis, you know what I'm talking about, and you know who I'm talking about. And it's essentially what John says is, Jesus was present at creation. Jesus was present and actively involved in creation. John connects Jesus of the Gospels to Genesis 1, in the beginning, by saying, in the beginning, or that which was from the beginning, right? So these are just little clues, essentially to say, Jesus is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. Then he moves on, and he's talking about the divinity. So he begins with the eternality of Jesus. He has no beginning. He has no end. But then he connects Jesus to God himself, the divinity of Jesus, and and the technical stuff, if you want to throw that next one up there. The divinity of Jesus as a member of the Godhead, as a member of the Trinity, as a member of this thing that the scriptures speak of that we call Trinity. Um, John connects Jesus with the Father. In verse 2, he says, the eternal life 
okay, the life, which is, he's referring to Jesus, which was with the Father. And then again, he says, our fellowship, at the end of this passage, is with the Father and with the Son. So John makes it very clear that Jesus is connected to not only this eternal idea, but this idea that he is one with God. God and Jesus are one in the same thing. Again, we talk about this uh, in theological terms as the Trinity, this idea that God exists in three distinct persons and, and functions in three distinct ways, but also is one. Uh, if you remember from Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is the Shema of Israel. It's this classic idea, this prayer that they would pray over and over and over again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is what? One. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. This is important. Why? Because in this day and age that, that, that the Israelites are living and trying to follow God, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of options as to who God is or what God is. And the Israelite story comes on the scene and says, actually, God is one. God is integrated. God is not the scattered, fractured being that you pray to uh, this way for the winds and this way for the, the rain and this way for the whatever, but God is one. And John says, Jesus is connected to this one God. In fact, they are one in the same thing. So with these first two, John sets up this clear distinction right, the eternal nature of who Jesus is and the divinity of Jesus and the distinction that he sets up is an ontological distinction. Now, let me break that down for non-philosophy people in the room. Ontology is really the study of essence. It's the study of being, right? So John's distinction that he makes with Jesus here is one of ontology. And what he's saying is Jesus is wholly other, not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is completely distinct and completely separate from, in that sense, our existence and our experience. Now, this is important for a couple of different reasons. There's a clear distinction between Jesus and us, and to this degree, Jesus has objectivity, right? He's outside of our experience. He's outside of our mess. He's outside of our sin. He's outside of our... Right? Do you follow? Do you track that? So what John's doing is setting Jesus apart from what we've got going on here. Why does he do this? Well, this will become hopefully clear in one moment. So Jesus, John sets up the eternality of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, and then he says this one phrase in verse 2, the life, of course, referring to Jesus, appears. In one translation it says, is made manifest, Right? Which is, which is to say, or which is to speak of, the incarnation of God. God becomes human. This is John 1.14, that God took on flesh and blood and dwelt among us. So John's just setting us up one step at a time. Jesus is eternal, the divine nature of Jesus. And now, Jesus, God, has become human. He's taken on flesh and blood. So here's the payout for this. Why is this so important? The eternal nature of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus. So what, right? Big deal. I, I never thought I'd do this, but I'm going to quote John Piper. <laughs> 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 
fun fact, uh, or, or maybe just let me encourage you, read people and listen to people even if you disagree with them on some things. It's good for you. It shapes you. It forms you. It sharpens you. Piper says this. Why is this important? Okay? When God becomes a man, he strips away all of the pretenses of man to be God. Let me say that again. When God becomes man, he strips away all of the pretenses of man to become God. Let me say it in a different way. When God becomes man, all of the ways in which we attempt to play God, all of the ways in which we attempt to be God, all of the ways in which we try to call the shots, all of the ways that we attempt to assert ourselves and our will as absolute, they're exposed. Because when God becomes man, the eternal, uncreated second person of the Trinity becomes a human, and then what Jesus says, what Jesus does, the message that Jesus preaches, the actions that Jesus carry out on the cross become binding. They become universal. Because what's John done? He set up Jesus as human, and yet holy, he's outside of us. He's objective. He can view and have access to and actually deal with things that we, the mess that we've made because he's the only one who can. This is a little offensive in our culture, right? The fact that someone's saying, um, we have a problem. You have a problem uh, and, and you can't fix it. You can't think your way out of it. You can't work your way out of it. You can't uh, do good things enough out of your way out of it. And you need someone else to help you, right? We're Americans for crying out loud. Land of the free, home of the brave. We can do this. In fact, one philosopher says that the Enlightenment, the modern era that we live in and are coming out of, is the coming of age of humanity. So this era that, that humans can think our way out of everything, we have the capacity to, do, to think and reason and fix what's wrong. And, and this, what John is saying, is essentially saying, no, you don't, and no, you can't. And it doesn't take philosophy to understand this. Um, the other day I was down in my basement. I have three daughters, some of you know this, and we're playing, we're doing our thing. And, you know, I always, I always try to do this, you know, anonymously so no one really can put two and two together and who's the culprit here. But one of my beautiful children is playing and, and does something to one of the other children and I say, you know, lovingly as a father would, you know, honey, let's not treat each other that way. And that's kind of, you know, that's a warning shot across the bow, Right? <laughs> And uh, the, the activity continues, and, and in fact, it gets worse. And so I, you know, dig my heels in a little bit, and I put on the father hat, and I say, so-and-so, you will not treat your sister that way. And what's the response? You're not in charge of me. You're not, or it sound, and, and these are the exact words, right? You're not the boss of me. <laughs> Technical foul right there. Time out. Let me clear a few things straight. I am the boss of you, and you will not treat your sister that way, or there will be consequences for your actions that you will pay for and regret for the rest of your life. <laughs> right? We don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to be told, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. You need help. Right? But this is what John's saying. A lot of people are okay with Jesus as a spiritual idea or a spiritual reality. But listen, get this. When God becomes human, he becomes particular. And therefore, what he teaches is particular. And his life and death and resurrection is particular. And it has binding effect on us. Now, I, I don't like the whole law court metaphor all that much, um, if you're into different theories of the atonement, but it works here, right? What's John setting up? 
you and I are all guilty of the same crime, breaking God's heart, (laughs) otherwise known as sin. We're all guilty. There isn't a one that this does not affect. Kierkegaard would say that we have a sickness unto death. We are all guilty. And if someone were to come, a nice, you know, giving, serving, sacrificial person, like, for example, John, he were to come and say, you know what, and he walks into the court where I am being tried, where you are being tried, and says, you know what, I would like to pay for the crime that Micah has committed. I would like to sacrifice myself on behalf of Micah and pay for his crime. What would the judge say? You're guilty of the same thing, right? You can't do that. It's not effective. If you're guilty of the same thing that I am, you can't sacrifice your life for me, even if you wanted to. The only person that can stand in my place is one who's not guilty of the same thing that I am, right? Who doesn't deserve what I deserve. So what John does in this first section is set Jesus up as eternal, divine, and becomes, God becomes human. Why? Because Jesus is the only one who can stand in our place, die our death, He's the only one. And this is exactly who John sets him up as. Now, he moves on from here, and he moves to very, uh, or I should say, the, the, entire, the entire passage, one to four, is sort of inferring something about the church. And, it's just, it, and I would say it's this. Um, so if we're going to, in this breakdown, you know, the first part theological, second part being church-related, maybe you could say it this way. The tracks that the gospel moves along. So this news that, that John's talking about, that Jesus is the only one who can stand in our place. The tracks that this message moves on, the way in which this moves out into the world, is by faithful witnesses. And, and, and you know, if you could detract your knee-jerk reaction of, you know, bullhorn guy witnessing out in the corner. That's not what I mean, okay? Faithful people who testify to this reality, and faithful churches who testify to. Listen to what he says uh, in, in verses, uh, verse 1. Which, that which we have heard, that which we've seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at, which our hands have touched, and then he goes back to it in verses 2. Uh, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim this to you, that which we have seen. So the means by which this message moves out into the world is faithful people and churches that represent and testify the gospel. Now, I was in college not too long ago, and uh, if, you've, if you've been in college or you remember college, um, food is a real, real big deal, right? I mean, every college kid's like, that's the trick for college ministry. Just feed them and they will come. You know, it's kind of like uh, field of dreams. Build it and they will come. Feed them and they will come. <laughs> This was no, no different for me in my case, uh, and as you can see, I didn't do well. Um, so we get some guys together, and we're like, okay, how do we get our access on good homemade treats? You know, like we're all, you know, living, I li- went to school in Colorado, and a bunch of us were from elsewhere. We're like, how do we get our hands on good homemade treats? You know, like the good kinds, not Oreos, but good stuff. So we start coming up with this plan, and we're like, hey, everybody's got trash, Right? It's kind of like the old, uh, the old book. No, no, that's a dumb one. I won't do that. Um, uh, you know the one, Everybody Poops? Yeah, okay, all right. 
So everybody's got trash. Everybody's got trash. And we're like, what if we figured out a way to connect our need for treats with trash? So somebody comes up with this brilliant idea, trash club. Yeah, trash club. It's brilliant, actually. So we plaster the whole campus with these posters that say, trash club, we will come and take your trash for homemade treats. Ha 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 Brilliant, right? So, of course, all these guys are like, yeah, dude, trash club, that's brilliant. That's a great idea. So we had T-shirts made. We had a chant. Yeah, yeah. So my, my college had stairwells. So there was like six rooms in a stairwell, 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 stairwell. And we had a big old pickup truck, flatbed pickup truck. And we'd drive the pickup truck. We'd start down the ghetto, one of the stairwells. And we'd stand out in front of the ghetto and be like, one, two, three, four, get your trash off the floor, five, six, seven, eight, break it down, separate, trash club. Then we'd run into, the, run into the stairwell. I mean, this is like 15 testosterone-crazed college boys, you know, run into the stairwells, and we would pick up everyone's trash on Wednesday nights, and of course, people would, they would actually, it worked. It totally worked. They would bake us treats, all kinds of things, and you wouldn't believe some of the stuff. We had a turkey one time, like a fully cooked turkey. <laughs> like, this is awesome! So we'd go down each, you know, stairwell and drive for seven, eight, break it down. And we'd, you know, get the loot. We called it all the loot. And then at the end of the deal, we'd take the trash over the dumpster and we'd get rid of all the trash and all the, you know, damsels in distress who didn't want to take their trash out were just thrilled about the trash club. And we totally made out with all kinds of good, good, good treats. It was awesome. It was fantastic. So you might be asking, why? Why on earth would you tell us a story about trash club? Here's the connection. Trash club was the means by which we secured treats. It was just a means to an end, right? It was the tracks that the food thing ran on. It was the way we got the food that we needed. It was the means by which we secured our food. The church if you don't get anything about what we do and why we do it and why it is so important, according to the scriptures and according to what, what we read and have learned, the church and the spirit of God are the means by which the gospel gets into the world. John says, listen, listen, I have seen it. I have experienced it. I have, I, I, it has changed my life. I have, I have reaped the benefits of this thing that we've just set up. This gospel, this good news that one has stood in my place and died my death and now offers new life to me. Now I give it to you. And I offer it to you. The church is the means by which, in partner with the Spirit, the good news of Jesus moves in the world. What we do is not about us. It's not about our preferences and our likes. It's not about our this, that, or the other thing. It's about something bigger than us. That's why it's so important. That's why John highlights it. And last, I think John hangs this whole thing on, and I love this about John. Uh, he hangs all of this, right? These really important theology pieces and these really, really important things about the church, he hangs it on two words. And I'll end with this. So that. He says, all of this, we proclaim all of this to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. 
we write this so that, or to make our joy complete. He hangs this whole thing on two so that. It's very, very personal. He says, listen, I share this with you so that you may too also have fellowship. And fellowship is this intimate, familial kind of word that you too might be adopted into a family that you do not belong. This is one of the greatest metaphors the scriptures offers of the gospel, I think. That God has adopted me and calls me his son. That God has adopted you and calls you his daughter. That I belong to a family that I have no right being a part of. That I sit at a table that I have no right sitting at. This is grace. And this is what God offers. John says, I, I, I say this, I share this, so that you may too also have fellowship with God. And so that, and, and if you don't, if you don't, my joy, my own personal happiness, my own personal joy is not complete. I am incomplete, essentially. And, and friends, at, at Awaken, we don't, I don't like to use guilt and shame as religious motivators. I think uh, it's pretty low, and I think that the gospel deserves better than that. And beyond that, it just doesn't last. So we don't do that. But I want to ask a question that I think is, is, is on the table because of what the text says. And the question is this. For how many of us in the room is our own personal joy dependent upon whether or not those closest to us know the love of God? For how many of us is it true that our personal contentment, our joy, our overflowing happiness is connected to those closest to us knowing and experiencing the love of God? So John basically lays it down. And he doesn't make any bones about it. He pretty much says, this is who Jesus is. This is what he did. And this is what it means. And to have fellowship with God, to be invited, to be reconciled back to the family that you were created for. The means by which that happens is Jesus. And so I would say as we close this morning, that uh, for those of you who are convinced of this and have said yes to this, that we now have a responsibility. Paul says we are ambassadors of a, this new message, this gospel in the world. And so my challenge to you is to fish or cut bait, right? Do something. Live a life that's worthy of the gospel. Love your neighbor in a way that actually communicates the gospel without words. Become a part of what God's doing at Awaken. And if you are yet to be convinced of this, then I'm not going to try to convince you. I'm not going to try to persuade you. I'm merely reporting the facts at this point, the way that the scriptures tell it. And I want you to wrestle. I want to invite you, actually, to wrestle with it. Because, gang, if this is true, if, if, if this is real, if Jesus 
actually lived and, and actually was miraculously conceived by God and comes into the world and lives a life, dies a death on my behalf, if this is all true, and then it was resurrected from the dead, not a fable, not a fairy tale, if this is true, that's a game changer. That is a total game changer. And I would invite you to, to consider it, to wrestle with it. And to ask the question, is it worth my life? Because this is the cost. Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. Lose your own life to gain back the one that you were created to live. You can go on and live the life you're living. And it's one that is less than what you were created for. And you can live that life and die that death. But the invitation of the gospel is to, to lose the life that, that leads to death anyways. And pick up and receive a life that actually leads to life one that you were created to live. So, there you have it. Let me pray. I'm going to ask Ben to come up and uh, lead us in one song as we close. <clears throat> so pray with me if you would. God of creation, <clears throat> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray in these moments that when we gather, um, God, you would be the center that you would be the thing that brings people back. That nothing that I say, nothing that we do would be um, primary. I pray that it would all be secondary. I pray that it would all support the message of the cross, which is a God who came down, who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, a servant, humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. That that would be the thing that binds us together. And I pray that that would be, by your spirit, God, the thing that draws people into this community. That forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration and hope and life, new life, where we trade what we, trade the broken and futile and often maddening attempts that we make to say, no, we can do this. I'm okay. I don't need it. God, may we trade that for the life that you offer and pick up a cross and follow you. Serve and love the world, even those who persecute us, even those who are our enemies. And God, in the end, I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that your story of hope and love and of forgiveness and reconciliation would be uh, the tune that we sing to with our lives. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter and Facebook Community. See you next time.